I would like to talk this morning about three heresies that I have known. Uh, I don't normally teach heresy, uh, I hope, but uh, I think this morning it's entirely appropriate in view of our uh, love feast tonight. There are a number of things that I'd like to say about the nature of the church, which I, I hope will provoke some questions in your mind. And uh, tonight at the Love Feast, we'll have an opportunity to confront honestly and openly some of the things that, uh, that you've been asking us or would like to ask. Uh, I'd like to begin by having you turn to a passage that I taught on some weeks ago, Mark 7. And I would like to uh, just read the passage. It's unnecessary to teach it again, but I'd like to remind you of some of the principles that, or at least one principle that we saw there when we looked at it uh, previously. Mark 7. Jesus is engaged in a debate with the Pharisees and scribes here. And uh, it says in verse 2 that they had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. The elders were the um, biblical uh, experts of the day. They were the ones who made the authoritative proclamations about Scripture. And when they came from the marketplace, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the traditions of men. Now what he's saying in this passage is that it is possible for tradition to be heresy. Not all tradition is heretical. Uh, the older I get, the more I appreciate some of the, the traditions, which uh, as a younger person I didn't have much use for. I'm beginning to see why people believe the way they do. But there are some traditions which are contrary to Scripture and which, if they're held to be authoritative, they are heresy. I have a friend who uh, was asked to leave his church by his elders because of some action that he had taken that he felt was uh, in line with, uh, with Scripture. And uh, the reason the elders gave it, this didn't happen here in Boise, it was miles and miles away from here, so don't try to, to uh, imagine who it might be. Uh, you don't know the person or the church. But uh, the reason that the elders gave is because what he had done was contrary to their tradition as a church. And when he pointed out that that tradition was contrary to Scripture, they said, I don't care what Scripture says, we've always done it this way. Now, that's heresy, you see. And that's the sort of thing we want to avoid. Now, I'm not at all an analyst of current trends in the 20th century church, but there are three heresies in the church in general, the evangelical church, that we hold as, as sacred, and we need to examine them. And I'd like to suggest what I think is the, is the correct biblical understanding of those principles. In each case, the, uh, the biblical corrective is the same. The first heresy 
is that the church is a building, and this is one that's very deeply rooted and tenaciously uh, clung to. The church is a building. We uh, encourage it in our terminology. I said the other day, uh, as I was leaving the house, it was late in the evening, and I had to run down to my office to pick something up, and one of my kids said, Dad, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to the church. And uh, without realizing it, uh, I made a heretical statement, because this building is not the church. I was the only person down here. If there had been two or three believers down here, then it would have been legitimate to say I was going to the church. Because when two or three people meet around Christ's name, that's the church. But this building is not a church. It's just a building. We enshrine it in our signs. You know that we have a sign out in front that says, uh, Cole Community Church, and it's affixed to the building. That sign is wrong. It ought to say, Cole Community Church meets here because this building is not Cole Community Church. As a matter of fact, I'd like to ask one of you men who is a sign painter and can do it well to do something about our sign because we're telling people the wrong thing. This building is not a church. People are the church. I've seen Sunday school materials that have a picture of a building on it with a caption that says, This is the house of God. That's not the house of God. That's a building where the house of God meets, you see. And very carelessly we uh, convey the, uh, the wrong ideas. Have you ever said to your kids, if they're running around in the auditorium here, be quiet, this is God's house? Well, it might be inappropriate to run around in this building. I've very often said to my kids, don't wrestle in the living room, go down to the family room. It's not because it's impious to wrestle in the family room, it's just improper. And it might be improper for children to play in this auditorium and to be noisy, but we ought to tell them, be quiet because you're tearing the place up or you're creating a disturbance, but not be quiet because this is God's house. Because this isn't God's house. It's just a building. It serves to keep the rain and the wind off of God's house. Because the truth is, God's house is people. The church is people. Now, let's look at a, at a passage that I think confirms that without question. 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3, and we'll begin reading with verse 9. Paul is describing the church in Corinthians by means of two analogies. One is that they're like a field in which the apostles worked, and one planted seed and another watered, but it's God who gives the increase. And then he changes his analogy in mid, midstream, and he says that God's people are like a building. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. And then he goes uh, on to develop that idea that the apostles built in one way, and Apollos, who is the other person in view in this chapter, added to it. He helped to raise this, the structure, the superstructure on the foundation. And then in verse 16, he says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God? And if you have a New American Standard uh, version, if you look in the margin, uh, the word that's translated temple here is the word for sanctuary. Do, not, do you not know that you are the sanctuary of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the sanctuary of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. 
Now he's addressing this to uh, he, to those who work in the in the house of God, to himself as an apostle and to Apollos as a builder, and uh, he's pointing out the seriousness of that activity and that they would be judged if they built improperly. But you see, he's not talking about building with with wood and stones and mortar. He's talking about building lives. You are the church of God. You collectively. God dwells in you. The counterpart of the temple today is not the church building. It's you, the people of God. You are the sanctuary. This, this room is not the sanctuary. We should never refer to this room as the sanctuary. That's heresy. This is just a building. This is an auditorium. You are the sanctuary of God. God dwells in you. Now, if we understand this, then we understand that buildings are relatively unimportant. They serve a function. They have a purpose in, in the scheme of things because uh, they keep us warm and they keep us dry and they give us a place to meet, but we must never be preoccupied with buildings. Buildings are always secondary. People are first. And our goal is to build people, not buildings. Europe today, as, as you know, if you've ever traveled across Europe, is, is uh, dotted with churches enormous cathedrals and uh, maybe a half a dozen people worshiping there and those buildings in my mind stand as a monument to the impotence of the church and and we don't want to re we don't want to reproduce that error here we don't want to put our time and energy and effort and money into building churches and buildings we want to build people because people are, are, as I've said before, God's most important product. That's where he's working. That ought to be the focus of our ministry. Now let me give a historical note here. As, as most of you know, we've been engaged for a, what seems like forever in a building program. I've only been here six months, but the building program stretches back for years. And uh, as you know, we have some property out here at Eustick and Maple Grove. It's a prime piece of property, 32 acres of choice land on the corner of Eustick and, and Maple Grove. And uh, that property today is worth perhaps twice what it was worth when it was bought. It's in an ideal location, and someday we hope to be able to build a, a building on that, on that property. Secondly, as you know, we have, uh, we have drawings that the architects have completed. They were commissioned some time ago to build, to, uh, to uh, produce drawings, and they've done so. They fulfill their end of the contract, and we have a commitment to them to fulfill our end of the contract, to pay them for the work that was done. Now, normally, as you know, um, the architects are paid out of the funds that are raised to build the building, but years have gone by, and funds weren't raised to build the building, and they've been left with... Uh, certain financial obligations, they have to pay their people. And so we need to fulfill our end of the contract. We need to pay them back, and we've made arrangements to do so. We now, we've renegotiated the note, as you know, and we're, we're paying them on a regular basis because that's right and proper. The scriptures say we should not uh, owe any man anything. We shouldn't continue to owe them. And what your elders are doing now is working on a project to scale the whole thing down. 
As you know, we plan to sell off part of the property, approximately half of it, because we don't need that, uh, that amount of land. 32 acres is a lot, of, a lot of land. All you have to do is go out there and look at it, and you'll get some idea of, of what size that plot of ground is. It's enormous. So we're going to sell off part of it. The reason is we don't plan to build what was originally planned for that location. Now, we're not saying that what was planned was wrong in the past. As a matter of fact, buying that piece of property may have been the wisest thing that we could have done because that in itself may provide the funds that we need to pay off all of the property, pay off our debts, and uh, begin to build a building with, uh, with, uh, what, with additional cash that we would gain from the sale of, of that land. So it was a good thing. It was God's provision. But our plan now is to go with a smaller structure, a multi-use type of structure, uh, with a gymnasium that could be used for an auditorium on Sunday morning and also used for the school, uh, a small office complex, and a Sunday school facility that could also be used for the school so that we would get multiple use out of all of our facilities. That's our plan. But to keep it fairly small and not to build on a large scale. Because the problem is when you begin to build on a large scale, then you have to justify the use of that building, and the building becomes an end in itself. You've got to have all of your meetings there, and everything begins to center around the church building. We don't want to do that. As we'll see in a moment, the church is the people out in the world, and that's where we want you to be, not centering everything on a church building. The second heresy, as I see it, is that the church is clergy. That is, the church is the pastors. And I think that's... Uh, observed most clearly in some of the titles that we give our pastors and also uh, the sort of, of ministry that we expect from the, the pastor is the counselor, the pastor is the teacher, the pastor is the senior executive of the church. He's sort of the leader and, and head man. If you turn to Matthew, the 23rd chapter, you get some idea of the Lord's attitude toward that adulation. Matthew 23. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. And they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments, and they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace and being called by men ra rabbi. The word uh, rabbi is an Aramaic word, ravi. It just means my exalted one. And that was a term that they used for their teachers. And Jesus said, But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. That really puts things in perspective. Now, he's not saying it's wrong to call someone father. I, I have heard people extend this right into the family, where it would be disobedience to refer to your own father as father. He's just saying, let's don't employ titles that separate us from one another, because we're all brothers. And no one has a place of honor that's above anyone else. We have one teacher. We have one father. We have one leader, and that's the Lord Jesus. 
and we ought to avoid any titles that segregate us and separate us from one another and exalt certain people and give them more honor than anyone else has. That's what we need to avoid. And that's why we've talked about some of these titles like reverend and pastor and other terms that are used. Now, I don't object to being called pastor as long as we call all the elders pastor because, you see, they're all pastors. They're all shepherds. The church, you see, is people, brothers. Now, the church does have pastors, as I say. They're elders. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore I exalt the elders among you as your fellow heir and uh, fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Now, the, the, the verb here that's translated shepherd is uh, the word from which we get our word pastor. Pastoral, you know, has to do with, with shepherds and sheep. And a pastor is a shepherd. In the New Testament, the elder is the pastor. He says, I, I speak to you elders, pastor the flock. And he says the same thing in Acts 20, if you'd like to corroborate that in another portion of Scripture. He says to them, you are the shepherds of the flock. Shepherd the church of God that is, uh, that's among you. So shepherd the flock among you, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. That's the church. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now the chief shepherd here is not Peter. And it's not the senior pastor, it's the Lord. That's the only chief shepherd in the church, is the Lord Jesus. And all the rest of us are just sheep. With a few exceptions, there are some who are designated as shepherds. And they're not there to lord it over the flock and make decisions in some, uh, some upper room that are binding on the flock. They are to serve the flock and to care for them and provide for their needs. Now, the New Testament does point out that there are some elders that were paid for their teaching. They were set aside for that purpose. Uh, Paul says, let, let those elders who labor in teaching receive double honor. That is, not only the honor that an elder receives, but also some form of, of uh, fee or salary. So there is a place in the New Testament for a full-time vocational shepherd. And these would be the your... your uh, uh, pastoral staff, as we refer to them. Uh, these people you, you know well. But it also includes all the elders because they all have honor and one is not to be exalted above another. That's the picture that we have in the New Testament. Now, the function of elders is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I dislike having to turn back and forth through the New Testament, as you know. I just like to expound a passage, but, but uh, I'd like for you to, to see some of these passages and uh, understand that, that these ideas are uh, based on Scripture, Ephesians 4. Paul writes in verse 11, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Those are elders. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. 
You see, the function of your elders is to help you grow up to full maturity in Christ. Their purpose is not to do the work of the ministry, but to equip you. You see how, how different that is from the traditional concept of a pastor who does it all. He does all the counseling, all the evangelizing, all the teaching, all the caring, and he robs the saints of the privilege of being involved in the ministry. You see, that's what God wants for you. He wants you to counsel and you to teach and evangelize and enter into the to the excitement of being engaged in what God is doing in the world. Our function is to teach you how to do those things. John Barnes and uh, Jerry Burt, Olaf Wiederman, as you know, have an evangelism class on Sunday night. Two of those men are elders. Their purpose in, in having that class is to teach you how to share the gospel. Gary Merkel teaches a, a sort of an ABC's class for new Christians. Its purpose is to help you get stable in your Christian life so you can begin to, to act as God wants you to act and, and lay hold of, of his resources. We have a women's class on Wednesday morning. We have a men's class, other things that are going on. The purpose of all of these meetings is to equip you to be involved in what God's doing. And at the present time, we're working on a, a sort of parish plan, for lack of a better name, dividing up the city of Boise into geographical areas and assigning elders to each of these areas so that they can begin to shepherd you and care for you. So that instead of having one or two or even five pastors, you'll have 17 or 18 pastors who will be accessible to you in time of need. That, we believe, is the New Testament pattern. The third heresy is that the church is a program. And by that, we mean scheduled meetings. And this one, again, is, is deeply ingrained in our terminology. Uh, people ask us, what do you do at your church? And we say, well, we have a choir, and we have a women's class on Wednesday morning, and we meet at 9.30 and 11 o'clock in the morning and see we betray ourselves because we're thinking about meeting. We think of the church entirely in terms of, of meetings. There are other indications, I think. One is our, our tendency to evaluate things numerically. Uh, if a meeting has, uh, has a lot of people, then that's a good meeting. In fact, the more, the better. If it's big, then it's successful. Size equals success. The interesting thing to me is that in the New Testament, numbers are very rarely mentioned. In fact, most of the meetings that you see in the New Testament are actually quite small. And if you evaluate Jesus' ministry numerically, then in terms of, of mere numbers, he was a failure. And so was Paul. Paul says at the end of his ministry, all who are in Asia have forsaken me. He didn't have anything to show for his years of ministry in Asia, in Turkey, if you evaluate his ministry solely in terms of numbers. The same would be true of Jeremiah. His congregation stoned him. That was how fierce they were in their rejection of, of his ministry. He didn't have anyone, you see. I once thought that a, that a more uh, workable standard would be to weigh people. And uh, I wish I'd had the, the time to do it because it would have made this story so much better, but I thought I would put a scale beside the front door 
And as people walk in, we would record their weight anonymously, of course. And uh, then uh, at the end of the meeting, we could announce that we had two tons of people. But you see, I, I, why not weigh them? Why count noses or heads? It doesn't mean anything. The, the, the number of people that, that accumulate or congregate doesn't mean anything in terms of what God is doing. Secondly, I think another indication of our preoccupation with programs is our, our tendency to pressure people to come to meetings. If the church is meetings, then you've got to have a lot of meetings. So much so that we just uh, we involve people totally in meetings and they don't even uh, know their families and they don't know their neighbors and they have no time to get out into the world and be the church. And uh, then we pressure people to attend. They have to be there because numbers mean something. That's the sign of success in the church. So we put pressure on people to turn up every time the doors are open. But you see, the question we have to ask ourselves about every meeting is, am I being fed there? That's the criterion. Uh, Hebrews says, Hebrews 10, 25, says, Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is in order to encourage one another. That's the purpose of a meeting, a meeting of the church, is to be taught the scriptures and to be encouraged out of the word, to go out into the world and live as God intends us to live there. And if a meeting doesn't accomplish that purpose, then don't come. As a matter of fact, one of the most spiritual things you may do some Sunday night is stay home and play with your kids. Not just show up here because you feel guilty if you don't. We don't want you to come to meetings on that basis. We want you to be fed. And the, the standard that we want to apply to any meeting is, is this really helping people? Or is it just a meeting? See. You've all seen that little bumper on the seventh day, the Lord went four-wheeling. And uh, I sometimes think if he were incarnate today in uh, Boise, he would probably go four-wheeling too on the seventh day. I don't blame you for going up into the mountains on Sunday morning. That's not wrong. You don't have to be here every Sunday morning. You should be here at times or someplace where you're being taught. You don't have to be here. As believers, we need to congregate to be encouraged, but we don't need to feel guilty about showing up at meetings. We don't have to be at every meeting. It's good for my ego, but that's about all it's good for. We want you to be free and come to those meetings that encourage you, help you. Another indication, I think, of our preoccupation with programs is our jealousy for our program. And we start feeling that unless we're doing it, then it's just not being done. And uh, we get concerned about the fact that Young Life is tapping off our kids, or Campus Crusade, or Navigators, or CBMC takes our men away from our program. But you see, we ought to be thankful that God is working through all of these programs, Young Life, and uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Campus Crusade for Christ, Navigators, Bible Study Fellowship. All of these ministries have been raised up of God primarily because the church has failed to do the job, and we need to be involved in all of these areas of ministry as a church. But they're there, and they're reaching people, and we need to get excited about what they're doing. And if somebody goes into their program, praise the Lord. It's a great place to serve and not be jealous because people aren't involved in our program.
I've said from, from the first day I came that we need to be servants to the church in this area. Uh, it's wrong for us to sit and be taught and taught and taught until we're filled with, to hear with teaching. We need to get out into areas where people are not taught and begin to use our gifts and function there. I have some good friends, Ben and Elaine Tyson, that came up from the Bay Area just shortly before I did. And boy, they're a neat couple. Many of you know them. And I'd love to have them in this church. But you know what they said? We're not going to go to your church. We're going to go someplace else because the need is greater there. And we need to be thankful that, for that sort of thing. And not get grabby and possessive of people. They don't belong to us. They belong to God. And our, our meetings need to feed people. But if people are not being fed there or if they're fed to the point of satisfaction, and they need to go someplace else to serve, then we need to encourage that. Give our people away. Because the church is not a building. The church is not a program. The church is people. People in action. That's what you see in the book of Acts. It's a good exercise to sit down and read through the book of Acts and see how people spent their time. They didn't spend a great deal of their time in meetings. They were out in the world. And that's where we need to be. I was at a, a conference in San Diego some years ago, and Dick Halverson was speaking. And uh, as many of you know, he's the pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., and one of the founders of what's called a fellowship there, working with, uh, with people in, in positions of leadership in Washington, D.C., and really a, a great ministry in that city. And someone asked Dick where his church was. And I think what they had in mind was, you know, what, on the corner of what street. And Dick looked at his watch and he said, well, let's see, it's 10.30 on uh, Tuesday morning. My church is uh, debating a bill on the floor of the Senate. My church is driving a taxi cab. My church is putting up bricks. My church is teaching in elementary school. He's right on. That's what the church is. It's a church out in the world, reaching lives, touching people right where they are. It's businessmen conducting their business with honor and, and with justice and with integrity. Some of you saw the notice in the paper this past week about Billy Saul Estes. The IRS, again, has, has uh, raised questions about his income tax in 1975 and 1976. And I, I knew of Billy Saul Estes quite well because he's from Texas. And he was well known in uh, church circles down there, very active in a particular church and ta taught in Sunday school. But he was a crook. He was an absolute crook. And uh, we would say, my, he was, and in fact, this was said. He's a good churchman. But he wasn't, because he wasn't what the church ought to be in the world. We need to be out counseling people. We live in an area where, uh, not uh, unique to this area, but uh, it's certainly true here that marriages are in big trouble. And those of you who have learned by God's grace how to have the right kind of relationship with one another, you need to be out helping others in your neighborhood who are struggling. And sharing the gospel, discipling people, caring for people. You know, a couple of our, of our young women this past week, two weeks ago, I guess, um, heard a couple of young men speak at, um, at BSU. And uh, Kelly Klein shared that last Sunday night. These uh, 
young men were in, in real need. They sensed it. And they invited them over for dinner that night, invited some other uh, people in the, in the college class to meet with them. They had an opportunity to share their home and their food and their love with them and, and share the gospel with them. And uh, this past Saturday, uh, Brian, my son, was playing basketball, and, and one of these young men showed up to play with them because of an invitation by another young man. And, and so they're being included. They're being enfolded. And that's what the church ought to be doing. It's reaching out to the world, bringing them in, sharing the gospel, being a source of comfort and encouragement out there. We meet here to be strengthened and encouraged, taught. We go out there to be the church. That's the pattern of the New Testament. That's the pattern of the apostles and Jesus. And that's the pattern we need to follow. That's why, for example, we don't have altar calls here. I know that's been called in question. And I understand why people are concerned. It's not because we as elders don't have a, a concern for, for people outside of Christ. We do. It's precisely because we do that we don't have altar calls here. Because what we do is, is, is teach you to bring your friends down here to find the Lord. The Great Commission, as I understand it, is to go into all the world and preach the gospel out there, not bring your neighbor down to the church building so you can hear your preacher preach the gospel. Let's go out there. That's where the work of the ministry is done. The question is raised, well, what about the non-Christian who comes in on Sunday morning and he, and he doesn't hear the gospel? Well, in the first place, we believe fully in the sovereignty of God that no one who wants to know God is ever going to fail to find him. God will search him out in finding. And secondly, people who hear teaching very often find that to be the answer to what they're looking for, and they'll receive the Lord right there. I've seen it over and over again, people sitting in the, in the benches who hear the, the body of Christ being taught, and they think, that's what I've been looking for. That's what I need. And you know, that sort of thing went on in the early church. In 1 Corinthians 14, you have a clear illustration of that. Unbelievers would come into the church, and Paul says what will reach them is prophecy, God's word to his people. And they'll be convicted right where they sit, Paul says. So you see what we're saying? The church is not a building. It's not a structure. Not, not a structure out of boards and brick, metal. It's people. It's not a program. It's people. It's you and me out in the world involved in the work of the ministry. One final passage, Colossians 1. 24 and 25. Uh, let's begin, begin reading with verse 24, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the, min the mystery of which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, Christ in the Gentiles. He's not talking here about individuals in whom Christ uh, dwells. The mystery is that the gospel now has been extended to the Gentiles, and they become a part of the church. 
And we proclaim him, that is Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. You see, this is the goal of our ministry. Howard Hendricks used to say, if you aim at nothing, that's exactly what you'll hit. So you need to have clear aim. And Paul tells us what it is. The goal of our ministry is to present every man and woman and child mature in Christ. And Paul says, I, I strive mightily. I work in order to accomplish that depending upon the power of God who indwells me. But that's the goal. And we ought to evaluate everything we do in terms of that goal. Our goal is not to build buildings. It's not to perpetuate programs. It's not to hand down traditions. It's to present people mature in Christ, to help them grow up. And we must evaluate everything we do in terms of that goal. Every plan we make, we ought to ask ourselves, to what extent does this cause people to be more mature in Christ? You know, when Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, he did not say, I'm pleased with you because I hear that um, you have reached 1,000 in attendance. Your Sunday school is running 800. Your choir is known all over uh, Macedonia. Uh, your children's program is outstanding. Your bus uh, program is reaching all over Thessalonica. As good as any of those things may be, that's not what he commends them for. He says, what I hear about is your work of faith your labor of love, your patience of hope. You have faith and hope and love, and that's what we want to see. We would like for people in Boise to think of Cole Community Church not in terms of buildings or programs or activities, but people who display the character of God wherever they go. Well, let's pray that God will, will accomplish that in us. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you that, that you have taught us clearly in the Word, what we're to be and what we're to do, and help us to think biblically, accurately, and uh, to learn to evaluate what we do on a, on a biblical basis. It, it's our desire, Father, to please you as your people, and to be where it counts, to be where the action is, and to, to rest fully on your power and accomplish all that you've called us to do. That's our delight and our desire. And we ask that you do it in us. We want to cooperate. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.